Welcome to the Maharat Cast. I'm your host, Rabba Ramey Smith, coming to you from London. My guest this episode is Maharat Rory Pickernice. Maharat Rory is the executive director of the Jewish Community Relations Council of St. Louis. Previously, she has served as the Director of Programming, Education, and Community Engagement at Base Abraham Congregation, a modern Orthodox shul in University City, Missouri. She also previously served as Acting Executive Director for Religious Peace USA, Program Coordinator for the Jewish Orthodox Feminist Alliance, Assistant Director of Interreligious Affairs for the American Jewish Committee, and Secretariat for the International Jewish Committee on Interreligious Consultations, the formal Jewish representative in the International Interreligious Dialogue. Maharat Rory is the co-chair of the North American Interfaith Youth Network of Religions for Peace, a Klal Rabbis Without Borders fellow and co-editor of Interactive Faith, the essential interreligious community-building handbook. Maharat Rory is truly a bridge builder, and I'm really excited for you all to hear about the work she does. What is the Jewish Community Relations Council? Tell me a little bit about the JCRC. So the Jewish Community Relations Council of St. Louis was founded a little over 80 years ago on the belief that the Jewish community is strongest when it works in partnership with other communities. And so we are tasked with building partnerships with other racial, ethnic, civic, and political groups, and working together on issues that are important to the Jewish community and important to the region at large. I want to backtrack a step and ask, what exactly is interfaith work? When we talk about interfaith work, I think of it a lot like any other relationship building that you might do. We believe that the Jewish community is strongest when we work in partnership with others. And if you think about it like when you're in high school, if you're the odd kid out in any way, what you want to do is you want to build friendships. And you want to build friendships partially because that enables you to tell more about yourself, to have a group of people who might understand why you're eating different food or sitting at a different table or doing things differently. But also because even if they don't know all that about you, they have your back if you just seem different. So essentially, that's really what it is that we're trying to do. When we build relationships, it's about having representatives of other groups know about the Jewish community. It's knowing who in the Jewish community they can call if there's a problem. It's feeling a sense of closeness, um, feeling a certain sense of understanding. And it's knowing, as again, with any friendship, it's knowing that in a time of trouble or crisis, you know who to call. Also in a time of celebration, you know who's going to be there with you. Why is it important to have these relationships? Why do we as Jews need them? And why do other religions or groups want to have these relationships specifically with the Jewish community? As we build relationships with other groups, usually we see other groups that are also really excited to build those relationships as well. We live in a time where coalitions are always stronger. That's true on a political basis. It's true in getting work done. We each bring different strengths to the table. So depending on what it is that a group is trying to accomplish, they recognize that they can always get further the more people they have and the more we're able to bring. 
I also find that our Jewish community, especially in America, has worked incredibly hard to really establish ourselves um, within this country. We have learned how to navigate through the political landscape. We know how to successfully lobby. Um, we have you know, we, we could talk about the number of Jews who are represented in Congress or um, the fact that we have elected officials who have Jewish family members. Um, but so as a Jewish community, we feel incredibly um, comfortable navigating civic and political spaces. And so especially for communities that are newer to this country or less established, they often recognize that partnership with the Jewish community can really advance their goals significantly. They often want, uh, they want the benefits of our experience. They want our ability to organize and mobilize. Walking into a situation where you know people feel and think and believe differently than you do is an obvious setup for complications. I want to know what are some challenges you face in this work? This work comes with challenges on, on so many levels. The work of building relationships, it's a hard one. Um, it's a hard one because you you want to genuinely build relationships with individuals that are based on mutual respect and caring and a real desire to get to know one another. But the most important relationships that we build are the ones across difference. And those can be hard because we might not be starting with the same premise. It is very easy in interfaith work to fall into the trap of only talking to the people who want to talk to you. And what that means is that we often then see these echo chambers, right? We'll have um, liberal groups that will talk to liberal groups. And when I say liberal, I might mean politically liberal, but also religiously liberal um, because they understand that each other. Um, more religiously conservative groups who want to talk to more religiously conservative groups. You sometimes have groups who, on principle, don't want to talk to a different group, right? Right. A lot more we talk about cancel culture, this idea that I can't sit at the table with you because I might normalize you. But those are, again, the conversations we need to have most of all. And so it's hard sometimes to try to get those individuals to the table. It's hard to have conversations. And it's also hard to move our community along because we'll have pushback within the Jewish community. Why are we talking to uh, this community when somebody might have said something that was offensive to the Jewish community or um, this person that might have ties to somebody who um, has spewed anti-Semitic rhetoric? And for me, that's when we lean in. I tell people often, you can pay me to only talk to the people who want to talk to me. My life would be so much easier, but it's a waste of your money. I need to be talking to those people, right? It's, it's exactly when somebody might be influenced by anti-Semitic rhetoric that I need to sit down with them and say, let's actually talk to some Jewish people. Let me tell you what our Jewish community is really about, or let me tell you why what you said was so offensive. I definitely see the value in these conversations. And I think over the last several years, as our communities have become more and more fractured because of politics, we have all struggled on some level to have conversations with people who fundamentally don't agree with us. How do you approach these conversations? What is the starting point for you in this kind of situation? So the starting point in, in a difficult conversation is going to be different for different people because different people are in different places and, and depending on, on what our ultimate goal is. In certain situations when, um, particularly when there's like a, a very public incident that happens, 
um, we'll usually try to connect and we'll usually, if we don't have an existing relationship, and this is why having existing relationships become so important is because we'll use our networks to get connected to that person. So, so let's, let me actually, let's step back. Let's say somebody says something offensive and it's a person that we've met with before or, or they've gotten to know us. That becomes really easy. I mean, it's a hard conversation, but I get to just pick up the phone and say, hey, we've spoken before. I don't think you meant anything offensive, but you use this comment. And I don't, you might not know that there's actually a history of um, anti-Semitic connotations to that particular comment, right? I mean, that's also, I think, part of what we need to realize is that oftentimes in these discussions, people aren't necessarily getting up saying like, how do I say the most hateful thing possible? They're, they're talking and they repeat a soundbite that they heard from somebody that they didn't know was offensive. Certainly, I, I'm sure I've been guilty of that as well, right? I've said something and because I'm not from that community, I don't realize what are all of the implications of it. So if I have a relationship, I can call that person and I can say, can we talk about what happened and, and can I explain this to you? Those will be very private conversations. Um, and that's also a challenge sometimes to navigate because what we want is not to have the community explode, right? Here's a person who just said an incorrect thing. We don't want them to get on the defensive. But if it's a public thing, then we have people from the community who want to see a public outcry, even as we want to have a very private response. So that's if we have an existing relationship. If we don't have an existing relationship, then we have to work through our networks. And that also requires really strong relationships because we have to call some folks and say, look, we need to talk to this person. Um, they said something, we are not trying to attack them. We just, we wanna connect, we wanna try to help them through this space, whether it is um, giving them some more background or even how can, we, how can we support them in doing some kind of public showing to, to demonstrate that, that they did not intend to um, be spousing an anti-Semitic or hateful comment. And so we need our folks to then contact, you know, the people we have a relationship with to be willing to contact them and say, listen, I want you to talk to Rory. I can vouch for her. Right. And, and so I need it because it's not just how do I get their phone number? It's somebody saying, take this call. She's the real deal. She's going to treat you right. She's not going to, she's not going to steer you astray. Um, and so we might um, navigate through it in that space. Um, it might be if it's like an individual um, faith leader who maybe said something hurtful in in a sermon. It might be contacting um, like leadership in the faith tradition to say, you know, we want to talk to you and can you talk to this particular pastor or this particular imam or this particular faith leader? So we navigate through it in a whole bunch of different ways. But most of all, whenever we want to have this conversation, we always want it to be really a private like one-on-one, -on -one. I mean, the way like our Jewish tradition talks about how we give tochacha, like how do we give um, feedback to somebody in a way that is kind and gentle so that they can hear it, so that they can be willing to do differently. Because ultimately our goal is that this person doesn't do it again. Not that we get to take credit for feeling good for slamming them down, but we want them to say, oh, I didn't know, thanks for telling me, you know, and we can move on from there. It sounds like a huge part of this job is having difficult conversations. Not just having them, but seeking them out. I think I can safely say for most of us, this would not be an easy task. I'm curious where the ability and the desire to have these conversations comes from. 
Is this something she's always been able to do? Or is it something that had to be learned on the job? I hate having difficult conversations. I do not think that I'm good at it. Um, it is not something that I pride myself in at all. I, I don't relish it. Um, and, you know, anytime somebody says you have to call somebody, I always, you know, have this internal groan. I, it, I do not love having difficult conversations. But I think I've just come to realize in the course of interacting with, with people, I mean, in the course of friendships and, and what it is to just be in dialogue with people, that honesty is always the best way that you get to move forward. And again, I, when I think about the work that I do, I really think that the parallels are all in individual people-to-people interactions. We all have these stories. We all have the stories of a time when a friend did something that was hurtful and we had to make the choice to either say, hey, that wasn't cool. Please don't do that again. And and if we do it in the right way, right, and, and if the person is genuine and we said in the right way, the person, oh my gosh, I totally didn't, thank you for telling me, you know, I, I appreciate it, right? Or you make the choice to stay silent, eventually the friendship's going to break down because you never actually dealt with it head on. I want the relationships that we have as a Jewish community with other communities to be genuine relationships. And so I know that for that to happen, I need to speak out and to say, hey, that wasn't cool. And I also know that I, I shouldn't say I know, I come at this from a real belief that people really didn't intend that comment to be hurtful. And I want to believe that up until I I might be proven otherwise, until a person might refuse to really hear that. But I really do believe that most people had no intention of saying something hurtful and that it's in times where we, we pile up when we keep escalating the issues that people have to get on the defensive as opposed to giving somebody a chance to say, oh, thanks, okay, noted, right? And just move on from there. For as long as I've known Maharat Rory, she's worked in interfaith work. But after graduation, she worked in the pulpit before returning to this work. I realized that after all of this time of being friends and colleagues, I didn't actually know how she got into this work to begin with. I asked her to tell me how she got into interfaith work and how her rabbinic journey led her back to it. I think my journey in interfaith work started really when I was in college, mostly because that was really when... I started to really live with and and interact with on a daily basis people who weren't Jewish. I grew up in um, an Orthodox household in a very a very Jewish neighborhood in Brooklyn, New York, and so it wasn't that we didn't interact with other people, but there just weren't that many other people to interact with. I went to a Jewish day school, I went to Jewish summer camp, and so all of my friends were Jewish and they all lived a very similar Jewish life. And so we could speak a similar Jewish language. When I got to college, all of my closest friends that I immediately met were primarily Catholic, although over time, obviously, that also diversified and and, um, quite a mixture of a group. But I found myself suddenly having to explain things in ways I, I never had to explain what kosher was and I never had to explain what Shabbat was. And I I knew kind of how to, but you start to realize you sort of struggle with some of the language around it because even the language to explain it becomes really insider language. I think for me also, because I grew up in this incredibly religious, passionate Jewish community, I knew what it was for religion to be a guiding force in people's life. 
I knew what it was for somebody to say, um, I know this is the speed limit, but I have to go faster because Shabbat's going to start in 15 minutes and I need to get home. Or I'm going to go to Israel and uh, I know that it's during the second intifada and I know that this might be dangerous, but I believe that this is what God wants from me and, and this is how I'm going to live my life. Right? Like these were the stories that I was surrounded with from the from the, the, you know, sacred to the mundane, so to speak, right? I would hear these stories all the time. And, um, and I was in college in, uh, I started college in 2003, so not too long after 9-11, when there was all of this talk of the clash of civilizations. And um, I was very interested in politics, but I started to realize that more so than, than political affiliation, religion was really something that people were willing to vote against their own self-interest or do things that might seem to be counter to what was best for them because they believed that that's what their religion called them to do or what their religion called them to be. And so I felt like getting to know people in their faith community was actually the best way to really understand what was driving people. And if we were going to ever understand some of the divides that we experienced, we needed to actually understand that we were speaking fundamentally different languages. So my journey to Maharat was really like from the interfaith work. I, I'd gotten really involved in interfaith work and realized that for me to be able to speak to other communities authentically and to represent Judaism authentically, I needed to be firmly grounded in my Jewish tradition. And while I, I felt like I had, I, I grew up always um, Jewish, I felt this need to make sure that I was getting it right. And so I didn't want to just repeat the stories. I wanted to read them in the original text. I wanted to be able to look at what, what does the text say? What does the commentary say? What do the rabbinic traditions say? And, and how can I really you know, get, get my, um, get my hands into it, right? Really get, uh, get my feet wet, all, all the analogies, right? How do I really dive into it on the deep end? Um, and so it was, it was interesting for me because the, the only way that I could really do that level of study ended up coming along with this path towards ordination. Although I will say simultaneously, most of the people that I was working with were clergy in their faith traditions, and, and that was part of the authority that they had to speak on behalf of their faith tradition was that they were recognized as leaders in their faith tradition. And so I, I started on the path towards ordination thinking always that I was going to go into interfaith work, and it was actually in, in doing that that I really also fell in love with working within the Jewish community. And... Um, so I'd always been sort of involved with both. And when I first applied for uh, the job working at Base Abraham Congregation in St. Louis, I met with Chaim Schaffner, who was the rabbi there. And I told him outright, I said, this is my background. And I don't know if I want to do pulpit work or interfaith work. And he said, come to St. Louis and you can do both. So I did. And I was working in the pulpit with, with interfaith work on the side. When I first got to St. Louis, I Googled my zip code and the word church, and I just reached out to all of the pastors in the neighborhood and said, hey, can I just introduce myself to you? Do you want to have coffee? I just started to get to know people and, um, and eventually got plugged into some of the dialogue groups that were happening, most of which were being hosted by the JCRC, um, got to know the executive director of the JCRC. I got invited to join the board of the JCRC. And then before I ever actually went to a board meeting, um, the executive director at the time had announced her retirement. And so I got a call that said, um, we want you to apply to be the executive director. And so for me, you know, switching over 
it really wasn't, it didn't feel like a huge shift um, to go from the pulpit to um, the JCRC. I feel like I'm still serving the Jewish community just on a larger scale. And I feel like what flipped for me was what is the vocation and what's the hobby? Um, so now, you know, I used to um, give the sermon and teach classes and, uh, and then I on the side would participate in dialogue groups and, uh, and do these other things. And now I run dialogue groups and meet with other faith traditions. And then on the side, I still teach classes and, and periodically give a sermon. So I feel like I still get to do all of the things that I love. And I just feel fortunate that at points in my career, I was able to get paid for any part of it. Are there ever people or groups who just aren't interested in dialoguing with you? There are people who, um, there are people who don't want to meet. Let me say there are, there are groups who are um, less invested in the relationship. Uh, so there are people who are interested in meeting, but for whom their focus is just internal. They have a lot of other things that are going on. And so it's not, it's not in their interest. Because usually when we have these conversations, we'll also talk about like, can we do a project together? Let's do something where we bring together other members of our two communities and, and we can do something. And for some of them, that's just, it's more work than um, they might be able to take on. But we do also have people who, when we reach out and say, we want to talk to you, they're not interested. Um, it definitely happens. And I would say oftentimes in those situations, it's usually the privilege of a majority group. Um, it's somebody who doesn't need to have another relationship because they're large enough, they're politically influential enough that they don't feel the need to to really work with others and they don't need to um, engage. And, and they're worried that that engagement might force some kind of change in behavior or might force them to reevaluate a theology or, or question something that they don't want to question. So we do have that with groups. And then we do have that with individuals where even if we might have strong relationships with a group as a whole, there might still be an individual person who it's just, it's not what they're interested in doing. And we have that in the Jewish community as well. You know, people who are just like, that's, that's not my jam. I'm curious about reaching out to groups who are publicly anti-Semitic or hateful. Groups of white supremacists or a church like Westboro Baptist Church. Is there any point or even any desire to have a conversation with these kind of leaders or communities? There's a lot of internal debate within the JCRC world and within the Jewish community as a whole of what are our red lines? Um, this is a conversation that, that I've been pushing in a lot of different circles as well. Federations ask it. Um, really every Jewish institution, because there is always somebody who is outside of the fold. And you need lines because outside of the fold is also who tells you who's inside. Right? And it doesn't mean that, that there have to be, I don't mean that in a disparaging way, right? But like that helps you know who you are because if you are everything, then you ultimately stand for nothing, right? So we need to have red lines and our community struggles because our community debates who should be over the red line. And that's a big internal debate that's happening right now are um, between the left and the right within Judaism is who they want to put over the line. And so we're seeing this where um, liberal, uh, Democrat, you know, whatever, right? More, more progressive individuals want to say that right-wing uh, white supremacists are over the line and are um, people who are affiliated with the Trump administration are therefore over the line. And it doesn't matter what Trump is doing on Israel because uh, if he associates with Steve Bannon, you know, we're, we're done with all of this, right? And then you have 
um, more right-wing Jews looking at the progressive Jews and saying, why are you standing alongside Linda Sarsour and Ilhan Omar? They have they've espoused anti-Semitic rhetoric, and how can you stand alongside them? This is dangerous for the Jewish community, right? And so what's, what's happening actually is that as a Jewish community, we are spending more time debating what is anti-Semitism than actually fighting anti-Semitism, because we're each saying that the other side's allies are anti-Semitic in ways where then each side is sort of defending their allies. So this has become incredibly complicated in, in multiple ways. For me, from my perspective, I feel like it's my job to try to talk to as many people as I can talk to and as many people as I'm able to talk to with the recognition that ultimately it's also about, um, it is about protecting the Jewish community and it's about building real relationships. So I have never reached out to groups that have been openly as a platform espousing anti-Semitism. Um, groups that might have individuals within them who have made anti-Semitic comments, we do work with. And so what I mean by that is like working to build more inroads in the evangelical Christian community, um, working to build more inroads in the um, Black Lives Matter community, right? Like, you know, I'm not trying to build a parallel on both sides, but right, like groups in which I would say they are not by definition anti-Semitic, but where we see anti-Semitism in those who also espouse those platforms, we see an opportunity because if we can build relationships with some of those individuals, then we can start to really impact the ways others in those groups are, are understanding the Jewish community and maybe not changing the individuals themselves who might be anti-Semitic without having met them. I don't want to make that, right? But we might not be able to say that we're going to take someone who's an anti-Semite and, and change them over, but we might be able to say that we can give another perspective so that those who are hearing that anti-Semitic rhetoric are also talking to people who have relationships with Jews and saying, oh, maybe it's not as clear cut as what this other person told me. Do you think we should be reaching out to these groups or do you think it's a waste of our time and effort? I mean, I don't know if I would say it's a waste of time. I mean, I think there needs to be like, there needs to be some kernel of, of an interest in a relationship. You know, if someone is starting off with a platform of like, Jews don't have a right to exist, then, then I have, I have nothing. I, I, I don't think I have anything to build on. You know, I think if somebody, you know, if somebody believes that, you know, Jews have a right to exist, but are going to hell because we don't accept Jesus, um, Jews have a right to exist. Um, and there are good Jews, but there are also bad Jews who are controlling the media. Um, right, like I feel like I have what to work with in that, right? Because then I can actually, you know, sort of build a relationships with them. But you know, in that, I think there is a certain initial premise of I need I need a person who's willing to engage with me. And if there's no engagement, if if you know this is somebody who just has no place for me in their world, then that's not where I tend to to devote my time. I, there needs to be sort of some sort of crack. I mean, also like, why would I even have, have sort of come in contact with them, right? Like I'm not, I'm not in the business of chasing those people down. If somehow I come in contact with a person like that and there is some opportunity for engagement, I would follow up with it. But I'm not like Googling Westboro Baptist church meetings and then, you know, just to show up to be like, hey, I just want to hang out. There are people who do that. Um, I, I mean, look, like there, there are stories of black people who have gone to Klan rallies and, you know, like people who like they do, like they show up and they're willing to be there and they have, they have changed hearts and minds. And I give them so much credit for that. That's not, 
that's not the work that I do. And, and partially also because like, that's really like a cracking away at it, like one little step at a time. And in part, I think because my job is to represent the whole community, I can't, I can't devote all my energy to like trying to change one person when there's, you know, people who are, who are interested in, in being part of our story. And granted, this is intra-faith work, meaning these are conversations within our own communities, families, and amongst friends. Can you give us some tips from your interfaith work to help us have these conversations? So oftentimes, some of the best intra-faith dialogue happens in interfaith settings, in part because people who wouldn't sit down with one another in intra-faith settings are both represented in interfaith settings and, and end up having conversations. And there are some of the same tools that are involved with it. One of the big challenges in, in having conversations across divides are the biases, the stereotypes, and the assumptions that we bring to the conversation. And so in any kind of dialogue, whether interfaith or intrafaith, one of the big rules is people get to speak for themselves. And in that, you can't say to somebody like, well, you think, right? It, it has to be from the eye and it has to then come from a, a curiosity and an asking questions. So we're seeing this more and more where I think places like Twitter and these uh, quick media sound bites want to, they want to um, distill complex ideas into these quick little, little nubbits, these quick little, um, these quick little sound bites that that then people can be angry about, right? Or or that can rile people up because that's also the quick, you know, why should people vote? What's fascinating, and I think sometimes the best way to really learn about all of this is when you actually see the sound bites about yourself because you realize how ridiculous they are. So um, so abortion becomes a major one on this, um, where um, as a Jewish community we have advocated for reproductive justice. Not necessarily because all segments of our Jewish community would agree on when somebody might have an abortion, but because basically all segments of Judaism agree that when they might determine either that one is allowed to or legally obligated to have an abortion is different than the Christian definition of abortion, which so many of these laws are trying to espouse a, a Christian definition of when life begins. But this often manifests into um, when, when we talk about advocating for reproductive justice, the soundbite is like liberals who dance at the opportunity to murder babies who are a week away from being born, like, like literally like dancing in the blood. I mean, it is, it is astounding um, when that's not all, at all the conversation that's taking place. And people believe these things. And so when people believe that, then, oh my, of course that's horrible, right? Like it's, of course we want to vote against that. Or of course, so the challenge is, is how do we move people away from that? And a big way is to also start off with a certain, it's to step into a space with a curiosity, right? It's to say, you know, tell me about this or, or where are you on that? So, so one piece of it is we have to really be willing to break out for ourselves the stereotypes that we have about others and to recognize that we also need to be, to be willing to engage with the stereotypes people have about us to then work to combat them. The second really big component is, is that oftentimes when we're having these conversations, 
we're, we're talking past each other because we're talking about fundamentally different things. And that's because we end up focusing on, we focus on, on very particulars when we're actually really having almost a conversation about like moral theory or, right, we might be talking about values. So in the sense that um, when somebody decides to vote, they're not necessarily agreeing with every single thing that that candidate stands for or everything that's in that bill. But we all have a sense of priorities. And at the end of the day, I am willing to, I'm going to prioritize A, B, and C, and I'm willing to sacrifice X, Y, and Z because I think A, B, and C are more important than X, Y, and Z, or I'm going to, I'm going to save the fight for X, Y, and Z for a later date. And it's not because, right, and so the stereotype becomes like, I hate X, Y, and Z, right? I don't hate X, Y, and Z. It's just, that's not the top priority. And so this also becomes part of um, when, when somebody votes differently, it might not be because they hate A, B, and C, they're prioritizing X, Y, and Z, right? Of which like, I also might agree with X, Y, and Z, but I think A, B, and C is more important, right? And so how do we start to have that conversation to actually hear people to actually to, to both ask those questions or, or to hear people to say what do you think of you know tell me tell me your stance on a tell me tell me what b means to you tell me right so so this happens um the jewish community this this has been a real source of tension in the way that american jews have voted because um of where we rank israel most polls will show that American Jews, when ranking their priorities, will rank Israel as high on their priorities. But when you actually have them prioritize, right? So they will, sorry, let me say that differently. Most American Jews will say Israel is very important to them. But when they rank their priorities, Israel is not usually a top priority for how they vote. American Jews tend to vote like Americans in that they care about things like the economy, um, particularly in this past election, uh, COVID response. Uh, healthcare reform, right? These are the things that American Jews tend to be looking at. Now, maybe because we're confident in the relationship with Israel, maybe for, for whatever the variety of reasons are, right? So when we're looking at a candidate, we're looking at all of those things. And so when people start to have these debates internally in the Jewish community, I, I get this all the time, right? Like people in my community will, will, I'll get emails almost on a daily basis telling me that I don't care about Israel enough. I find it fascinating because they never actually stop to really ask me for my relationship with Israel, my politics on Israel. But what they see from their perspective is I don't use all of my time to talk about Israel because part of my time goes to talking about racial inequity within St. Louis or healthcare reform within St. Louis, criminal justice reform, gun violence, um, things that American Jews also care about. But for them, if Israel is their top priority, then every minute that I spend talking about one of these other things is a minute that I'm not caring about Israel. And that doesn't translate. Instead of saying to me, I want you to prioritize Israel more, or I think Israel should be more important to the Jewish community than the economy should be. They don't say that. They say to me, why do you hate Israel? Well, how can we have a conversation? Because I can't answer that question because I don't hate Israel, right? So that's not a question. That's not a, that's not a place of dialogue. Right now, if they sat down to say, I want to understand why you think racial equity is an important issue, we can have a conversation about that. I can also talk to them about how I believe that the work that we do on racial equity builds alliances 
with others in other communities, particularly the African-American community, where having those relationships has then opened the door for us to bring Black leaders to Israel or to then have a conversation about why our Jewish community feels Israel is important. And I think that that actually could be doing more for Israel than attacking me about Israel does. And we can have that conversation. But when, when I get an email that says, what kind of idiot are you? Or why do you hate Jews so much? There's no place to have that conversation. So, so all of this is a long way of saying, right? I, I think at, at its essence, when we're trying to have this conversation across difference, it needs to come from a place of recognizing our own stereotypes and be willing to come with a real curiosity of why is this actually important to you instead of, I need to beat you up to tell you why this is important to me. That was really amazing. Um, how do you think that being like an orthodox woman who's also clergy has helped you in this space? I think the fact that I don't fit into boxes traditionally, being an, being an orthodox female clergy who works in interfaith, I think it helps me recognize that most people don't fit into boxes. It's what enables me to walk into spaces realizing that um, none of us might be as typical as we think, um, that my assumptions about other people could be wrong because their assumptions about me are probably wrong. And I think it enables me to really come in much more open-minded and much more curious. Can you tell me why the Hamonam or the general population should care about interfaith work? I don't think that every person has to participate in interfaith dialogue, but I think every person should recognize why it's important. Our American Jewish community is maybe 1% of the population within America. We're half of a percentage of the population globally. There are not enough Jews in the world for people to know about the Jewish community. People. People don't have to engage with us. They don't need to know what our holidays are. Um, they don't need to know what our beliefs are. And because of that, historically, it has opened the door for people to demonize us, for people to dehumanize us. And that's what enables people to ultimately lead to violence and, and even genocide. As Jews, I think we know that for all communities and we need to be deeply invested in making sure that never happens to another community. And we need to be deeply invested in making sure that doesn't happen to us. And the only way to do that is for more and more people to know Jews. This episode is sponsored by 18 Doors. 18 Doors is the only nonprofit that exclusively caters to interfaith couples and families where one partner is Jewish and the other has a different faith or cultural background. They can connect you with interfaith-friendly, inclusive rabbis for important events like weddings and bar mitzvahs. Their website features endless resources like guides on hosting your own Seder, doing Shabbat, and celebrating every Jewish holiday from Passover to Tu B'Shvat. 18 Doors is there to remind you that there's no right way to be Jewish and all interfaith families are welcome. Visit them at 18doors.org. That's 18doors dot O-R-G. Thanks for listening to this episode. Hope you enjoyed. And don't forget to check out all the other episodes from this drop. As always, we'd love to hear from you at maharatcast at yeshivatmaharat.org.